We're almost done with the book of Jonah. We're uh, eight sermons in. We got one more to do. That's next week. I get to do the eighth one, uh, and I'm excited for it. It's a really good thing uh, that we're going to be talking about, something that is important, something that is, uh, has made me a little bit emotionally charged uh, this week. So I am going to get through it uh, without trying to do any weeping or anything like that. Uh, I feel like... God willing, I'm going to be successful with that. Uh, In 2004, I found myself in Afghanistan. Uh, I was working for a humanitarian aid organization. I was helping to rebuild schools and clinics and infrastructure in Afghanistan. I hadn't been there for very long. Uh, I looked a lot like this. I dressed like this. And I quickly realized, uh, even though I hadn't been there for very long, that if I wanted to be safe, uh, in a war zone, I kind of wanted to blend in. So I got to get, had to get rid of these clothes. And I told my uh, interpreter that I really want to wear traditional clothing, traditional Afghan clothes, which is very baggy, long uh, shirt, real baggy pants with the head wrap and all that stuff. I started to grow my beard out. Uh, I cut all my hair off so that I could just fly under the radar, right? That I wouldn't bring any attention to myself. Uh, And so he was really excited about that. He was excited that I wanted to get uh, the clothes like him. I said, yeah, but I want to get it just to blend in, right? It's it's not like a big deal. He was still so excited. He's like, oh, Mr. Gary, we're going to go and get you the clothes, and we're going to be, it's going to be so much fun. Uh, And so he and a driver and I drove down to this open-air market, uh, and they custom make your clothes. So I, I went to this tailor and I pick out the fabric and he's measuring me, even though like when I got the pants, they were somehow like eight sizes too big, right? You have to wrap it around. Uh, and uh, we were looking at different hips uh, and uh, all of a sudden, everyone starts running and there's a lot of loud noises, uh, a lot of yelling and running. The shop owner stops measuring me. He backs up. He starts closing down his shop. And the interpreter comes to me, and he says to me, Mr. Gary, we have to go. We have to run. So naturally, I just start running with them. I run with them. I was scared. I just I didn't know what was going on. I was terrified. We ran out of the market. And we start running down the street uh, to get to the truck. And everyone's running. Everyone, it's all chaos. And all of a sudden, they stop in front of me. And I stop next to them. And they're talking, and they're pointing, and they're doing something. And I said, hey, what's going on? And the interpreter turns to me, and he says to me, Mr. Gary, I don't think that we're going to make it, which is not something you want to hear when you're in a war zone. And I said, what is going on? And he points behind me. And this is what was approaching. It's a big dust storm, a big sandstorm, and it was seconds away from us, and we weren't going to make it to the truck. And if you've ever been in a sandstorm like that, it is overwhelming. It is suffocating. It puts sand everywhere. Anything that is exposed, it goes there and stays there, and it stays there for days and days. Uh, and it's hard to breathe, it is impossible to see unless you have goggles on that protects everything from going in, Uh, and so we hunkered down behind this little makeshift wall, and we all get down, and we're squatting down and and kneeling, and so 
Everything that they have, their, their clothing and their head wrap is for a purpose. It's, they use these things for tools and for a reason. And one of the things that they use the head wraps for, other than cooling and, and being warm and stuff in the wintertime, is that they take a portion of it off and they begin to wrap it around their face in a dust storm. Keeps the sand out of their mouth. They're allowed to breathe a lot better than if they didn't have that. It protects their ears and their nose and they close their eyes and they bring that thing around. And I didn't have any of that. I looked much like this. And so I kneeled kneel down and I covered myself as best as I could with my arms. And the interpreter and the driver, they both begin to unwrap their head wrap. But instead of putting it around their face, they covered me with it. They protected me from the storm instead of themselves. Even though I was completely different than they were, I was different in every way, and they barely even knew me, yet their compassion reached out to me. They met a need that I could not meet myself. I was powerless. I was helpless in that storm. And they reached out to me with their compassion, and they covered me with something that they knew. They knew this was going to cost them something. It was going to cause them discomfort. They were going to get the brunt of the storm because of what they were going to do. And their compassion to me, in a very real sense, was them loving their neighbor as themselves. And this is an overarching theme. This is a concern in the book of Jonah that we see is that we as believers are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Before we go on, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your spirit, for this church that we get to come to. It is your church. And you invite us here. We are your guests, and we are so grateful for it. We're grateful for your word. Let it speak to our hearts and our minds today. Let it do something. Let it stir in us to respond to you in ways that only you can stir. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love your neighbor as yourself. God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jonah struggles in this area. At the start of the book, the captain rebukes Jonah for not showing compassion, for being indifferent, for doing nothing for the common good of those uh, pagan sailors on the ship, for not showing compassion or for concern for them. All the guys, they are working hard to save the lives of all the rest of the guys on the ship. They're throwing their cargo overboard. Right? They're, they're crying out to their God. And then we find Jonah, he's just lounging around doing nothing. And the captain comes down to him and rebukes him. And he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? How can you be doing that? How can you be doing nothing in a time of need? And at the end of the book, Jonah's angry. He throws a fit because God does not destroy the people of Nineveh. And God says, do you do well to be angry? Do you remember what his response was? Yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the more I've been thinking about Jonah, the more I'm thinking, Man, this guy is just, I feel like he's just socially disconnected from the people in the story, right? Like he's, he lacks 
any sort of compassion or concern for these people. At the end of the book, he's just so angry. And it makes me wonder, well, what kind of guy is Jonah like back at home? Is he a good guy? Hanging out with his friends, is, maybe, is he a life of the party? Is he always invited to the party? Because like at party night and all the prophets get together and everyone's just like, we gotta have Jonah because he's so much fun. And when asked about Jonah, his friends would just go like, oh, he's such a good guy. He's so loving, he's so kind. We don't know what Jonah was like at home because one of the main points of Jonah is not about who we are called to be around people that we choose to be around. It's about who we are called to be around those that we do not choose to be around. The Bible tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not that Jonah didn't know about this commandment, right? We tend to think this is something that Jesus said. This is something like a New Testament thing. But to love your neighbor as yourself, when we hear these words, it's more than just what Jesus said. Certainly Jesus did say to love your neighbor as yourself, but he is quoting something from the Old Testament, something that was written 1,500 years before Jesus walked on this earth, 700 years approximately before Jonah lived. And we find it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The law says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jonah wrestles with what exactly does this mean? Who exactly is Jonah's neighbor? He thinks there's no way that it could be the Assyrians, the capital being Nineveh. There's no way, there's no logical reason why we would think that Jonah would think that the Assyrians would be his neighbor, that God has called him to love. They're terrorists, they're bullies, they're enemies of the Jewish nation. They hate the Jews, and the Jews hate them. It couldn't be the pagan sailors on the boat, right? It couldn't be them. They're vile. They don't even believe in the Lord. They're disgusting. They're ignorant. They're ungodly. They're a waste of Jonah's time. Jonah has defined for himself then who his neighbor is, and he's defined for himself who his neighbor isn't. He has wrestled with the question, who is my neighbor? And this should sound a little bit familiar because you fast forward 750 years to the time that Jesus walked this earth and a man comes to Jesus and he's going to test Jesus. And he asks them a question. He asks him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing this guy, he knows He's an expert on the law. He's an expert on the Old Testament. And he says, well, what do you think? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And the guy answers back, and he says, well, you're supposed to love God with everything that you are and everything that you have, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you are 100% correct. You hit it right on the nose. Because loving God with everything that we have is the first half of the Ten Commandments. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the last half of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, okay, well, you got it right. All you have to do then is to go and do that, and you will live. Just go and love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And so it says, wanting to justify himself, he asks a follow-up question to Jesus. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? 
It's this question that prompts Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Another way that this expert in the law could have worded his question was, who is it that I'm not required to love? Teacher, tell me who my neighbor is so that I know who my neighbor isn't. Because surely, as a Jew living under the Roman Empire, living under Roman control, surely a Roman soldier would not be considered to be my neighbor, right? It's not reasonable. It's not logical. Surely a tax collector, God wouldn't require me to love that guy, right? He's a Jew working for the Romans. He's extorting money from me, and he's put it in his own pocket He's an enemy of the Jews, surely. Tax collector wouldn't be my neighbor, right? Doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. What about a Samaritan? Now, a Samaritan used to be Jew. They were Jewish people that intermarried with Gentiles around the time that the northern kingdom uh, was occupied sometime around 700 B.C., when the Jews came back from captivity, the Samaritans then they tried to stop the rebuilding of the city. They tried to stop the rebuilding of the temple, and hatred grew between the Samaritans and the Jews. And then in 128 B.C., the Jews attacked and destroyed the Samaritan temple, a temple that they used to worship God. There was intense hatred between the both, for Jews, for Samaritans, for Samaritans, for Jews, and they were half-breeds. They were considered to be traitors, rabbinical teaching at the time, one of them says, if you eat the bread of a Samaritan, you eat the flesh of swine. They were considered racially inferior. Their lifestyle was considered inferior. Their religious practices were considered inferior. Surely, a half-bred, godless enemies of the Jews who are despised and inferior in every way, surely they could not possibly be my neighbor, right? It's not logical. It's not reasonable. Please, teacher, tell me who my neighbor is so that I know the Samaritan isn't. But the story that Jesus tells in response to the question, who is my neighbor, is shocking. There was a man who was attacked by robbers along the road. He was beaten. Everything was stolen from him. He was left beaten and bloody on the side of the road. He couldn't do anything. He was powerless to do anything about his condition, and he laid there. And he required some assistance. He required some help. And so thank goodness a priest comes along, a religious person, a person who's supposed to be directing people to God. He comes along, and he sees the man, but instead of going to the man, he walks to the other side of the road. He completely ignores this man. And then a Levite, who also is a religious man working in the temple, he comes along and he does likewise. He sees the man and he ignores him. He walks to the other side of the road. And then along comes a dirty, filthy, inferior Samaritan. And he sees the man. And the Bible says that he has compassion. He has compassion to the man. He goes to him, and he tends to his wounds. He pours oil and wine. He uses up his resources for him. He bandages up his wounds. Then he takes this man, he puts him on his donkey, and he brings him to the nearest inn. And he goes to, into the innkeeper, and he says, here's two days' worth of salary. 
I'm going to give this to you, and I want you to take care of this man. And if you have to spend anything above this amount, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I will repay you in full. He basically writes a blank check. It's the dirty, filthy, inferior Samaritan who is the hero of the story. It's shocking. It's the worst-case scenario for this expert in the law. He is shocked by this whole thing. Now, fast forward 2,000 years to today. Surely, neighbor could not possibly mean our actual neighbors, right? I mean, sure, maybe some of them are likable. Maybe even one or two of them are lovable. But that neighbor... That neighbor who's noisy, who's nosy, who's lazy, that good-for-nothing neighbor, it's not reasonable or logical for that neighbor to be our actual neighbor. God wouldn't call me to love that person, right? Maybe some of my neighbors are in here. It's not you guys at all. Uh, Surely, not my in-laws, which my in-laws are sitting right here. It's not you guys at all. Right, they're strange. They don't mind their own business. They don't even like me. Surely it couldn't be my boss. Have you met my boss? Surely it couldn't be that coworker. It couldn't be that race, that age, that religion. It's not logical or reasonable, is it, that those people, those people would be called, that I would be called to love them. Those people would be my neighbor. Jesus says, when he says to love your neighbor, The story of the Good Samaritan, he's saying love your fellow human being because they are made in the image of God no matter what and no matter who. And this is something that Jonah fought against. This is something that people for thousands of years have fought against. This is something that you and I today, we fight against because it goes contrary to our logic and our reasoning, doesn't it? And Jesus tells us, put aside your logic. Put aside your reasoning when it doesn't match with God's will and God's word. He tells us to trust in him, put our faith in him, to listen to his words because they are perfect and they are pure. Put aside your human reasoning. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yet we don't find this anywhere in Scripture. We don't find this in the Old Testament. Just an example, one example found in the Old Testament is in Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Jesus says, you've heard it said, not that it was written. You've heard it said. You've heard it interpreted. You've heard your teachers tell you. You've heard your society tell you that this is acceptable. There's no way that neighbor means Samaritan. No way that neighbor means tax collector. There is no possible way it means Ninevite or pagans. Therefore, maybe neighbor means friend. Okay, love your friend and hate your enemy. Doesn't that seem logical? Doesn't that seem reasonable and humanly attainable? And Jesus says, but I say to you, all right, but I tell you this is the truth. 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. It's so contrary to human logic and human reasoning. But this is what Jesus does. He comes in with his words and his truth. He provides clarity and correction. He brings understanding back to our understanding, true understanding. He brings the treasure of God's perspective. He brings light to our dark perspectives to love our neighbor, our fellow human being as ourselves, this means to include the Ninevites for Jonah. This means to include the pagan sailors for Jonah. Obviously, Jonah struggled in this area, just as many of the Jews in Jesus' day struggled, just as we struggle with this today. For thousands of years, humans have struggled with this because it goes contrary to human logic and human reasoning. But here's the major problem with our logic and our reasoning when it comes to loving people. It naturally causes us to evaluate people, to put labels on them so that we can categorize them, neighbor, not neighbor. Those that we are called to love and those that we are called to be pushed away and treat indifferently those who deserve our forgiveness, and those who deserve to have a grudge held against them. See, we have a tendency to look at others and formulate guidelines for our interactions with them depending on who they are. Because what we want to figure out is if the time and energy and resources that we are going to spend on someone is not just beneficial for them, but is also beneficial for us? Is it a good investment? Is it going to be success or is it going to be failure before we spend time with them, before we engage in gospel conversations with them, before meeting their physical or spiritual needs? We have a tendency to look to them to see who they are. It doesn't matter who they are. This is what God is trying to teach Jonah. Is what we can see in, in the story of the Good Samaritan. It doesn't matter who God brings into our lives. What matters is who we are. Because who we are will determine how we see them. And how we see them will determine our attitude and our behaviors. See, those men who helped me in that dust storm, they didn't evaluate me to, to see if I was worthy to see if I was worthy of their help. They didn't do that. I looked completely different. I acted different. I was different in every single way. Yet they had no apprehension. They had no ulterior motives. Their compassion wasn't conditional. There was no evaluation of me. Instead, what they did for me came from a predetermined decision based on the value of human life not based on my nationality, not based on the color of my skin, not based on my religious beliefs, but because I was considered to be their guest. They labeled me their neighbor even before they knew me. So it didn't matter who the Ninevites were. It didn't matter who the sailors on the boat were. What mattered was who Jonah was. Because who Jonah was and how he thought would determine how he saw them. We can see who Jonah was by his indifference to the sailors. We can see who Jonah was with his anger that the Ninevites would repent and that God would relent. Weeks ago, Pastor Bob said that Jonah was a grace snob. <laughs> I love that. 
He believed that pagans and enemies of the Jews, they did not deserve the grace and the mercy and the salvation of God. And if that's the case, then they certainly didn't deserve Jonah's time and effort. He was primarily looking at them and using his opinions about them to determine his attitudes and behaviors. See, if we want to learn from the life of Jonah, if we want to learn from the story of the Good Samaritan about what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we need to start with this fundamental idea that it doesn't matter who they are, it matters who we are. So we're going to look at three aspects of who we are that requires change so that we can love our neighbor. The first thing is a change of heart. In order to love our neighbor, to love our fellow human being who is made in the image of God, even our enemies, to love them as ourselves, the first thing that we need is a change of heart. Ezekiel 36, in the Old Testament, verses 26 and 27, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God was speaking to the prophet Ezekiel and he was saying, you people, you have an issue. You're just too human, Your hearts are wicked and vile, so God says, I'm going to do something that you are powerless to do for yourself. He says that everyone, all human hearts, are like that wounded, beaten man on the side of the road. And we're helpless to do anything for ourselves, and we need a good Samaritan. We need a great Savior to come alongside us and to heal us. The prophets told and they looked forward to the day when God would provide a Messiah, a Savior of the world in order to accomplish this. 750 years after Jonah, Jesus walked this earth and he went to the cross and he accomplished this very thing. It's a gift of God. not by anything that we can do because we can't do anything about it. We are powerless to do it, and so God does it, and he does it through Jesus Christ. And it says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we are to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. We will have a new heart. See, when it comes to loving God and loving others as ourself, then this is something that only God can do. It's a supernatural work, nothing that we can conjure up on our own. So we start with prayer. We talk with God. Because what we need, what we truly need, is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He purifies us. He cleanses us. He brings our soul to life. He changes who we are. In order for us to begin to see people the way God sees people, for our hearts to break for the lost, for our compassion to be extended to the poor, then we need God to change our hearts. I mean, how else do we love God with everything that we have? How do we love God? people, even our enemies, as we love ourselves. How do we do that unless God does something? Romans 5.5 says God's love, not our love, God's love has been poured into our hearts. 
God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's God's love. Our love starts with his love changing who we are from the inside. The second thing is we need a change of mind. This deals with like Romans 12, 2, about transformation uh, because of renewing of the mind. It has, uh, it's about Philippians 4, 8, about what we think about consistently. We need to consistently renew our mind to allow the Spirit of God to do his work in us, to use his word to keep our thoughts in check and provide correction to our thinking, to adjust our opinions that are based too much on our human understanding and our human reasoning. He provides insight into what is really true. He asked Jonah in chapter 4, do you do well to be angry? This is such a good question, isn't it? You had compassion for a plant, a plant, and yet your anger burns toward a city of 120,000 people. Do you do well to be angry against people who are beat and broken along the side of the road spiritually, people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, do you do well to be angry? Are you seeing clearly? Is your perspective off? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. It should not come as a surprise then that we need to be shown a higher way. His thoughts and his perspective are higher than ours. It should not come as a surprise then that our thoughts can be flawed and lacking and that we need something to be put those things in check. Do we, well, do we, do, we do well to be angry? Do we do well to hate our enemy? Do we do well to evaluate that the people that God has brought into our life, do we do well to evaluate them to determine whether or not that they are worthy of our love? Do we do well to hold back our compassion by looking at them to make this determination? No, we look to Jesus. We look to the word of God to make this determination. We don't look to them. We look to Jesus to show us clearly who we are and what we are called to be so that who we are in Christ provides the guidelines to live by and we need his word and we need his spirit and we need a renewing of the mind that is day by day and hour by hour and minute by minute. So there's a change of heart. There's a change or there's a renewing of the mind that leads us to the last thing that we're going to look at. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, then keep my commandments. It requires a change of direction that matches more heart, matches with our mind. All the way back at the beginning of Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1, it says that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and that word tells Jonah, arise and go. And we talked about how unprecedented it was for a prophet of God to be sent from his homeland to a foreign land with a message that God wants him to deliver. It's unprecedented. But Jesus gives us the same instruction. Just as God told Jonah to go, he tells every believer to go. At the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, 
Jesus asked the expert on the law, of the three, who is the neighbor to the person who was beaten and broken on the side of the road? And the expert of the law says, well, the one who gave him mercy couldn't even say the word Samaritan. The one who gave him mercy. And Jesus said, that is exactly right. He says, now you go. You go and you do the same thing. You go and be like that Samaritan. You go and do likewise. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is the Great Commission. Go, therefore. Go. Go. And make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus tells us all to arise and go. In 2004... There's a Dutch filmmaker by the name of Theo van Gogh. He was killed by Muslim extremists in the Netherlands. And this sparks a lot of violence, a lot of animosity between Christians and Muslims. Christians were burning mosques. Muslims were burning churches. And in the midst of all this anger, in the midst of all this violence, there was a, there was a pastor who did something very radical. His name was Keith Sabrandi. In a book entitled Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration, the author Matthew Kaimink interviewed this pastor, Sabrandi, and this is what he wrote. Reverend Keith Sabrandi was not by any stretch a model example of interfaith awareness and tolerance. When I asked him what he thought about Muslims, he complained that they had created a lot of trouble in the Netherlands. He complained about Muslims' poverty, crime, urban blight, terrorism, and government dependency. Sobrandi's attitude about Islam made his response to Theo van Gogh's murder in 2004 all the more confounding. Across the Netherlands, tensions were running high. Mosques and churches were being vandalized and even burned. In a curious response, Sobrandi stood up. He walked to his neighborhood mosque. He knocked firmly on the door, and to the shock of the Muslims huddled inside, he declared that he would stand guard outside the mosque every night until the Dutch attacks ceased. In the days and weeks that followed, the pastor called other churches in the area, and more and more Christians joined him, circling and guarding mosques throughout the region for more than three months every night. But why? What possible reason would this conservative Christian give to explain his actions? What could have motivated him, of all people, to do this? Sobrandi showed little awareness of the more peaceful aspects of Islam. He showed no appreciation for Islamic culture, clothing, or food. He recounted no stories of past friendships or dialogues with Muslims. Nor did he profess that as a loyal citizen of the Netherlands, it was his patriotic duty to show liberal tolerance toward Islam. He was not inspired by modern dogmas of liberty, equality, or fraternity. Multicultural appeals for a celebration of difference had little pull on his heart, and when I pressed him to explain his actions to give an account for why he would defend a religion he deeply disliked, Sobrandi simply replied, Jesus. Jesus commanded me to love my neighbor and my enemies too. He stood up. He walked to the mosque. He knocked on the door. His love drove him to action, to be intentional. Jesus says to arise and go and love and care for the wounds of people. And how do we move in that direction? 
How do we begin to align our direction with this change that God has made in our hearts and our minds? It requires us to first notice the needs of people, to stop noticing the differences and start noticing the needs of people, to start thinking about the needs of people and how we are to love them and opportunities to show our love. We need to start thinking about our resources, evaluating the gifts that God has given to us to be stewards of those things, to hold on to these things loosely, to be able to think about things and stop asking ourselves questions about who is my neighbor and begin asking questions, how do I show my love and what has God given to me that I can share and give and sacrifice without prejudice? We need to start thinking about what is true. Stop asking ourselves what do we think and how do we feel and start renewing our mind with the words of God. To start thinking like a citizen of the kingdom of God, to love our fellow human being created in the likeness of God no matter who they are, to care for their needs the same way that we care for our own needs, to meet their needs the same way that we would meet our own needs. Our logic tells us that this is going to be uncomfortable, doesn't it? It rebels against this idea. Are we going to put ourselves at risk in loving people this way? Yes. Is it going to make us vulnerable in loving people this way? Yes, it is. Could it be costly and inconvenient? Most certainly, because that is what love looks like. Ask Jesus on the cross what love looks like. Ask Jesus on the cross if loving people puts you at risk. Ask Jesus on the cross, is loving people costly and inconvenient? It is this love that he loves us. It is with this love that he has poured into our heart. It is with this love that he tells us to go, to arise, to love, and to care for people's needs. To label people as your neighbor even before you meet them. He says, go and help the poor. Go and help widows and orphans. Go and preach the gospel. Go and preach the gospel because there is no greater wound that humans have than the wound that is created because of sin. There is no greater need that we have than our need for a savior. And Jesus points out people along the side of the road as we walk along our life who are broken and beaten and powerless to do anything about it spiritually. And he points them out in our lives and he says, arise and go and tend to their needs and heal their wounds. My prayer is for all of us this week to start thinking about the needs of people, for us to evaluate our resources, for us to begin moving in the direction that the Lord is leading you to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your love for us. It has changed who we are. It continues to change this planet. It begins to change something that is desperately wicked, and that is our heart. We ask that we would renew our mind to your truth every day, every hour, every minute, that we would go to you as a source of truth, as a source of love, not to beat ourselves up about how bad we are, but to look at you, to remind ourselves about your love, to remind ourselves about your commandments. We thank you so much for loving us. We thank you so much for pouring your love into our heart and changing us. Help us to take that and arise and go and do what you say for us to do and to care for the wounds, to care for the physical needs of people, to care for the spiritual needs of people and go 
and to preach the gospel to the people who desperately need it. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great, <laughs> you guys have a great week. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.